but parallel to the law concerning the, the offering of these continuous sacrifices was an increasingly revealed hope of a greater sacrifice or a greater solution. And, and this promised solution was not so obvious when it was first given, but as you read your way through the Old Testament or as they lived their way through the Old Testament, it progressively became more and more clear. For example, we find this promise first spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 15, when God revealed that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then later, through the stories of men such as Noah, Abraham, David, among many others, this same promise is given more and more clarity though not fully revealed, not fully comprehended by those who were living in this time. In fact, we read in the latter part of the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of a day when when God would make a new covenant with his people. And as a result, they would all follow him. Not just some, but all of them. Ezekiel and Jeremiah state this specifically, that under this new covenant, all would follow him. God's commands, the promise that God had made and its progressive revelation caused God's people throughout the Old Testament to look to the future with hope of something greater, something greater than what they were experiencing in this continuous cycle, even though they didn't fully understand what that would mean. You see, as we enter into the New Testament, we first read the Gospels. And the Gospels were, were written down by, by men inspired by God. And they were preserved in order to provide you and I, even this very day, with a testimony to the fulfillment of that promise. The promise that, that God himself had made to his people. The Gospels testify that, that God's promise has, in fact, come in its fullness As opposed to this continuous cycle that pointed forward, the gospel state, in one way or another, that that promise has fully arrived. And the goal of the gospels is to reveal that Jesus Christ is truly the promise of God to his people. And that through him, the ultimate need of all humanity would be provided. A final sacrifice that was fully sufficient for all people Of all times, no longer to be repeated. And because of Jesus, there would no longer be a need for God's people to continue this process of of bringing sacrifices for sin, which we're reminded that the Old Testament makes clear would never be sufficient to secure eternal forgiveness. Now, as we read those Gospels, we find that each Gospel goes about revealing this ultimate truth in, in somewhat of a different way. A different perspective or a different approach. For example, Matthew's gospel, as you read through it, it seems to initially have a a Jewish audience in mind. And and as a result, it tends to use a lot of Old Testament scripture to make the point. Then you you go to Mark. And Mark seems to initially have a more Gentile audience in mind. And so it's written in accordance to that goal. Luke, on the other hand, seems to have... In view, as he's writing his gospel, the, the have-nots of, of his day and age. And that is, he tends to focus very much the stories upon the poor, which was a category of have-nots, and even in that day, upon the women 
who are a category of have-nots. These three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have much in common in the, in the flow of their story as you read through them in the storyline. And, and as a result, that you'll often hear these three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, referred to as the synoptic Gospels. They're often tried to, to be laid on top of each other in their timeline to get the full picture or a broad perspective. But John, on the other hand, takes quite a different approach. John's gospel seems to be written not merely to convey the events of an eyewitness, even though it does do this. It seems to rather be written from a theological perspective. In other words, it, it, it is theology. It is the, the conveying of a belief, a particular belief, and not merely history that motivates John to choose to include certain things within his gospel and leave other things out. He only uses that which, which moves his purpose forward. John's gospel is known for its initial focus on the signs of Jesus. As we entered into this, this great book almost a year and a half ago, we, we first went through these signs. It mentions this was the first sign of Jesus and the, and the second sign of Jesus. And, and some would argue that there are clearly seven signs presented in the gospel of john it's also the gospel from which we we gain the uh, an understanding or or we read about the well-known i am statements in the new testament i am the way the truth and the life i am the good shepherd i am the door i am the resurrection and the life and that point simply i am john seeks to clearly reveal jesus as the son of god God in the flesh, God himself, and therefore, as John the Baptist had said earlier, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And because John approaches the events of Jesus' life from this theological perspective, we are to recognize that almost nothing written within this gospel is, is simply narrative. Yes, it, it, is, it is written in narrative form, but it's, it's more than just narrative, but it seeks to present both what we call a Christology or a doctrine of Christ. Who is he? What is this all about? He seems to, to pointedly seek to convey a what we call a soteriology or a doctrine of salvation. As we try to understand these key important beliefs. Now, is it that the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, don't do any of this? It's not that they don't build a Christology or a, or a doctrine of salvation. But John does so from a more direct approach, a more appointed approach. And it's one of the reasons why we often say to people, whenever they are curious about Christianity or after they've come to faith, read the Gospel of John first. Because it takes a very pointed approach concerning who Christ is and what salvation is all about. So... Because of all this, because of John's way of writing, it is important for us to keep in mind essentially the entirety of this gospel when we're reading any particular passage because sometimes the other passages, other things that John has written are going to weigh into the passage we're reading. They're going to help us understand better. Or maybe stated another word, we need to learn to allow John to interpret John as we're reading through this gospel. And such is the case for our passage today in John chapter 19. In light of the promises of God to one day deal with the cycle of sinfulness, 
inherent in all of humanity, John alone chooses to include Jesus' final statement from the cross. It is finished. And this declaration itself begs the question, what? What is it that is finished? And in light of the story of Scripture, we find that the it, or we understand the it, to refer to the work of salvation. It is finished, it is done, to the world salvation has come. Which then in return raises yet another question. What is it that had to be accomplished in order for salvation to be available to sinful humanity? And it's this question that we will seek to answer in part, not in full, but in part as we look to John chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. Read that together with me. John writes, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a a, a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be, to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews 
said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, and the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to, to his own, as his own. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we want to ask this morning that as we consider this this often well-known text, a story of which many of us have heard time and time again, that, Lord, you would... Grant us fresh eyes, fresh ears to hear and to see and to look into this. And maybe through it, Lord, that you would thrill our hearts at the great sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. Father, in this time, it's our desire that you be exalted above all through the proclamation of your word and through the receiving of your word as we both speak it and as we actively hear it and allow it to shape our minds, and our hearts this morning. Father, we pray you would have your way in our hearts and do as you will for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This chapter, or chapter 19 in John, picks up right in the middle of the trial of Jesus that was before Pilate, of which we considered... In part, last week, as Jared shared with us last week's message. And that message that Jared shared from the previous section of Scripture sought to answer Pilate's question in chapter 18, verse 38. That question was, what is truth? Now, ultimately, we find that Pilate wasn't really all that concerned about what really was true, but but was instead really interested in what was most expedient, what was going to be the best for everybody. Make things work out to everyone's good, except for maybe that of Jesus. But his pursuit proved to be more than he himself was bargaining for. He had no idea what he was up against. The last line of chapter 18 serves serves to reveal the tragic condition of the hearts of the people who possess the name, the people of God. They ask in return to Pilate's offer... As a tradition, whom shall you release for us? They said, Barabbas, give us Barabbas instead of Jesus. So John closes this chapter in, in, in chapter 18 with, with a statement of irony concerning their choice by simply stating, now Barabbas was a thief. 
And Pilate had set himself, it seems, on releasing Jesus. As we read through this narrative, we find that to be exactly the case. The tradition of releasing one prisoner to the Jews had failed as an option to end these proceedings. Pilate, it seems Pilate thought, well, this will take care of it. Who do you want? Do you want Jesus, this one who's accused, or do you want Barabbas, this sorry insurrectionist thief? And to his surprise, they say, give us Barabbas. We'd rather have him. So Pilate then makes a second attempt to release Jesus by seeking to present Jesus to them as a a beaten, pitiful, broken man, hoping that that would, in return, satisfy their their vicious cravings. Jesus was, as chapter 19 uh, begins, flogged in accordance to Roman law and was mocked and beaten by the soldiers who, during that mocking, placed a crown of thorns upon his head and, and clothed him with a purple robe, mocking his Royalty, his claim to kingship. And it seems that Pilate possibly believed that this would reveal that this so-called king, the one whom the Jews seemed to have a concern with, would be no threat at all. And they would therefore give up their, their attempts to have this man unjustly crucified. Pilate then presents Jesus to the people with the words, Behold the man! Which draws attention very likely to His pitiful condition as nothing more than a mere man and not much to be considered a very good king. But still unsatisfied, the Jews cry out yet more for him to be crucified. It is Pilate's response to the crowd's shouts that that reveals to us his own disinterest in taking part in what he seemed to believe unnecessary. Because the text goes on and tells us, he says, well, then you take him yourselves and kill him. He didn't want to be a part of these proceedings. He didn't want to have anything to do with this. And it's at this time, at this point in the text, that that Pilate states for yet the third time that he finds no fault in this man. And verse 8 records Pilate's great concern over this matter when he hears for the first time the ultimate charge being raised. See, because in verse 7, we read, The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to be He ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And then verse 8 goes on and says, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And verse 8 tells us that Pilate feared all the more because of those particular words that the Jews now revealed. He ought to die because he makes himself to be the son of God. Pilate likely realized at this point, at this juncture in these proceedings that the Jews were not likely to settle for some consolation punishment, but were very likely going to push this to the very point that they had asked for crucifixion. While this appeared in our text, it appears to be the last detailed attempt of Pilate to free Jesus. John adds yet one more time in verse 12 that Pilate sought to release him. So the question that's raised with with this process, this narrative of the proceedings of Pilate continually saying, I find no fault in him and seeking to have this, this man released, it raises the question, why are we provided with all these details of the numerous attempts to release Jesus? Especially in light of the fact that as we read John's account, 
John completely skips over the trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. He just goes right beyond that, straight to the, the, the trial before Pilate. Which even makes his inclusion of these details even more curious. He leaves out this section so that he can focus in on this particular aspect of Christ's suffering. It proves that John has a specific goal in, in what he does choose to include. And the ultimate purpose of John is served in Pilate's statements himself on the lips of Pilate in chapter 18, verse 38, and then chapter 9, verses 4 and 6, when Pilate is recorded as saying, I find no fault in him. In other words, this man is blameless. Now, we understand, and, and John understood, that Pilate's words alone don't make something true. Pilate was nowhere near the author of truth. Nor do Pilate's words in this particular scenario seek to char- characterize the entire life of Jesus. They are focused in on this specific aspect that's going on, this, these proceedings. But John nevertheless uses this, this reality, this historic reality in his gospel to bring emphasis upon something that is extremely significant as we look to this person, Jesus. If Jesus was to be what John the Baptist declared him to be in chapter 1, and that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then he had to be without any fault. And not only did he need to be without any fault himself in private, but it need to be Something that was able to be declared publicly for the world to hear. He had to be the sinless son of God without spot and without blemish. And so John seeks to underscore this very truth by by means of the words coming from this Gentile authority. Christ's sinlessness was not an added characteristic to the gospel message, yet somehow beefed up the gospel to to make it sound a little better. Nowhere was this added along the way. This was a reality in the very life and death of Jesus. It was an eyewitness testimony. He was indeed without sin and therefore sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, as we continue to read through the New Testament, we find in many places that Other writers of the New Testament give commentary on this very issue because of its great significance. For instance, the writer of Hebrews gives us commentary on this particular aspect of Christ's character and life. In Hebrews 4.15, we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then in addition to that, Peter offers further commentary on this issue in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. You read verses 18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Throughout the Old Testament, the sacrifices made on behalf of the people's sins had to be a lamb without spot, without blemish. But this only made temporary provision for their sins and therefore had to continually be offered. And this reality in the Old Testament only revealed 
their sinful depravity and their need for a much greater, a much more significant solution. And the ultimate sacrifice was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who was the only perfect, sinless human being who became for us the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. This was an absolute necessity, necessity in order for the work of God to be finished. The sacrifice must be blameless. But secondly, we find that the promise of God must be fulfilled. Not only must the sacrifice be blameless, but it had to be the sacrifice. Emphasis on the. It had to be the sacrifice in accordance with the eternal plan of God. It couldn't just be any sacrifice offered up, even if it was without spot and blemish. It had to be in accordance with the plan of God. See, when Pilate realized that he was up against a determined crowd, he further questioned Jesus. In verse 10, Pilate comes in and inside the praetorium and he, he asks Jesus again, he says, Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And at these words, Jesus responds something very important. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now, these words, they don't simply imply that Pilate occupied the position that he occupied by the divine plan of God, which would definitely be the case, that he was in that particular position. But Jesus' words focus more on the aspect that Jesus had been specifically turned over to Pilate for this particular moment. That Pilate had been placed in this role, not by chance, not by Bad luck, maybe from his perspective, bad karma, but by divine design. It was the very purpose of God. It was in accordance to God's plan. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus' death was decreed from before the foundation of the world. And it was God's singular plan from the very beginning. It wasn't something that happened along the way because they got pushed into a corner and any sacrifice whatever that sacrifice may be even if that sacrifice is is blameless and spotless any sacrifice sufficient for the sins of the world could only be the sacrifice that was decreed by god himself it had to be the sacrifice that fulfilled the promise that god first revealed in genesis three fifteen. it couldn't be some other sacrifice it had to be that which would accomplish god's promises throughout the old testament And John seeks to make the condemnation of Jesus not only the unjust plan of lawless men, of which it was, but he seeks to make it the perfect plan of God. And and while that may be difficult for us to wrap our minds around, it's exactly what Peter tells us in the the sermon of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he writes, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's plan, God's design accomplished through the lawlessness and sinfulness of human beings. John continues to press this same issue of God's design plan in this sacrifice by declaring these events to be the fulfillment of Scripture. You see, we find in verses 23 and 24... That John provides us with a matter of detail, fulfillment 
of Old Testament scripture. He even places in there for us the scripture of which he's speaking of in Psalm 22, verse 18, as he quotes that. And then a little bit later in verse 28, we find that John simply adds to the text so that scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus' declaration before Pilate of God having to have given authority for this to take place, along with John's inclusion of these scriptural references of scripture being fulfilled, seek to reveal that all these events were divinely orchestrated. The plan of God, however, we need to remember, did not only serve the great need of God's chosen people. You see, God's plan from the very beginning was a plan for the entire world, for the Jew and the Gentile alike. This wasn't something new. You see, Israel was chosen not to be the exclusive people of God, but to be the light to the Gentiles so that salvation would come to the ends of the earth. And though Israel had failed as a nation to fulfill their calling, God's promises had not failed. Not for one single moment. They weren't derailed. They weren't sidetracked. God was working in the midst of sinful men, rebellious men, to bring about fully his divine design. God's promises could not fail. It was no coincidence that God sovereignly designed Christ's sentence and death to be carried out by Gentiles. It becomes very clear that the Jews rejected him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. John 1.11 But John records for us Jesus' words in, in verse 11. He goes on after establishing the fact of, of the authority that's given from heaven. He says, For this reason... The one delivering me to you has greater sin. Now, on the surface, when we read that, it looks as though the point of that statement is to put all the blame on the one who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. And that would partially be the case. And this likely refers to Caiaphas, the one who delivered him over. And Caiaphas is the representative of the Jewish people. So really, this statement probably more refers to Christ's own people, the Jews, that they had the greater sin. I mean, it makes sense, right? They had a greater light. You'd think they would have known. So it becomes obvious, at least to me, that they definitely bear the greater sin. And it seems that that's what Jesus is, is pointing out. But while they did have the greater sin, what we read and understand even in that statement is that Pilate, the Gentile, was not exonerated. He was not left unaddressed, for they had the greater sin, which means what? He too bore the mark of sin. He too bore the guilt of condemning the Savior of the world, however, doing so in what we might say in ignorance. He didn't have all the, the pieces of the puzzle that the Jews did. He, he had, we had no reason to believe he would understand all the history of God and what he's been doing through his people up to this point. God's people had a greater responsibility, but remained blind to the work of God in their midst. But although it might have been in ignorance, Pilate still has responsibility for his unjust actions, as do all who stand ignorant of the truth, even this very day. The entire world, Jew and Gentile alike, John helps us see, stood in a desperate need of a Savior 
God's plan was to redeem a people for himself from every nation under heaven. Jesus' condemnation at the hands of both Jews who rejected him and delivered him over and the Gentiles who who issued the ultimate uh, sentence of death was God's design and both reveals the sinful condition of all humankind and the plan of God to provide a savior for the entire world. In order for God's perfect plan to be declared finished, it required that the sacrifice be blameless, sinless, perfect. And it required that that sacrifice be the result or the solution to the promise that God had designed from ages past, which was a promise that was not only to a particular people, national people, but to the entire world, whether Jew or Gentile, which is good news for, I think, probably most everyone of us in here today. <clears throat> now, before I move to my third and final point, which is really four points, I guess you could say, before we get to that final point, I need to add in here what's called an excursus. And you say, what is that? Well, I guess in other terms you can say it's chasing a rabbit. Is that all right? Uh, the, the reason I'm adding this in this way is because there's a portion of this text that is somewhat difficult and, and I can't really make it fit in the flow of what had to be accomplished. Though it's not completely apart from it because John includes it here. It's just that it's very difficult for us to understand exactly for certain what John is, is driving at. I think there is a, uh, it's possible to be understood. I just haven't completely arrived there. And so it's, I'm saying that this is difficult because it's hard to determine definitively what the full meaning uh, is concerning this particular portion of our text. Though many have opinions myself included, and points like these are called an excursus or side note, chasing a rabbit. We'll, we'll catch it now. But they don't typically fit into the flow of what we're doing, but I need to address it. And so I'm doing so under this heading. <clears throat> this portion of scripture in verses 25 through 27, uh, which many of us are somewhat familiar with, In this portion, we find the record of Jesus' words to his mother and his beloved disciple, whom we believe to be John himself. Now, this episode has been used among some or by some to argue for the exalted role of Mary on the basis of Jesus' words, Behold your mother. Now, this view is is extremely unlikely, at least from John's point of view. As we read this gospel, because John throughout his gospel gives no place to Mary, except for briefly in chapter two and then here in chapter 19 for a brief moment. In in both cases, Jesus only refers to Mary as Jesus mother and leaves her nameless. And then the result of this episode that we read about in verses 25 through 27, behold your mother, looking at the disciple, behold your son. From that very, hour, that very hour, John took her into his own. In the result of this episode is John caring for Mary and not the other way around, which presents Mary in a more diminished role rather than an exalted role. And for those reasons, I don't think it holds up very clearly to be an argument for the exalted role of Mary in the story. 
Now, another view of these verses merely explains this passage to be a, a side note, kind of a, a kind of a look into the compassion of a son for his mother while he's dying. And it is, in fact, a compassionate act, it seems, of, of a son for his mother to make sure she's take, taken care of. And I'm not saying it's not that uh, in the midst of this great pain and grief. It's, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus would even address this. And this is, this perspective is, is the common view amongst most Protestants. But as I mentioned earlier, and I have to be careful how to say this, as I mentioned earlier, John doesn't include unimportant information in the gospel. Now, that's not to say that the concern for Jesus' mother as he hangs on the cross was unimportant. But in light of John's arguments, in light of John's goal, that doesn't seem to be something that John would step back and address. And in that sense... I argue, to be unimportant information in the gospel. But he tends to only use that which serves the purpose of making his theological point. Now, because of this view, because of that understanding, it is difficult to assume that the inclusion of verses 25 through 27 is just simply an aside or an additional note, just extra information. In addition to this, as you go on and read verse 28, after John deals with this episode of... of Mary and the beloved disciple, he goes on, he says, After this, Jesus, knowing all things, were completed. After what? Well, the episode just recorded in verses 25 through 27. is after this episode of this exchange of Jesus addressing his mother and addressing the beloved disciple that he then, John informs us, Jesus is aware that at that point that all things were completed. And so this episode somehow serves to conclude the work of Christ on earth, leaving only his death to be accomplished. So while I have an opinion, I share it with great caution and offer it as an opinion. Because it's difficult to be certain, even though I'm fairly confident for myself. So consider these few details with me, just briefly, and then we'll move on. As I already mentioned, Jesus' mother is only mentioned in John chapter 2... And in John 19. In John chapter 2, that's the story of the wedding at Cana where Jesus' mother requested his help with the wine. Now this was the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's the place in which he performed his first miracle. And John notes that this was Jesus' first sign. A sign for John was that which would reveal Christ to be, in fact, who he claimed to be. And so here we find Jesus in this passage at the very end of his ministry on earth. So the entrance into the public ministry and now at the very end. In both instances, Jesus merely refers to his mother as, and don't take this derogatory, but as woman. Now that's not in the 21st century Western idea. Woman, that's not what it's conveying. But nevertheless, a very general address, woman. Jesus' specific response in John 2 to his mother in the wedding of Cana was, he says, woman, what does that have to do with me and you? For my hour has not yet come. Now, throughout John, we have been given a timeline based on that little phrase, the hour. My hour has not yet come. You see, first, that's where we begin. It's not here. And then as you continue reading through John, we find that the hour is near. And then we find that the, the hour is at hand. And then now when we re-enter this episode with Jesus' mother again, we find that that hour is right here. 
fully arrived. And then Jesus' desire for John to care for his mother seems quite unusual, seeing that Jesus had several brothers who would you expect to care for his mother. So it appears that these two episodes share common links and that John is using the inclusion of Jesus' mother to make a statement about Jesus' ministry on earth. With her it began and with her it ended. And following Jesus' request, John includes this statement when he says, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. And it says, and from that hour... And so we we find the inclusion of this concept of the hour introduced specifically to this text as well. And and the question is, what hour? Well, as it has always been, the hour that has governed this entire gospel, the same hour that Jesus informed his mother had not yet come in chapter 2, and the hour that was now fully upon him. These two episodes serve to emphasize the beginning and the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. But even more than that, and here's where my opinion comes in, Jesus seeks to establish a new relationship between his mother and John, who are unrelated, rather than to leave his mother to the care of his unbelieving brothers. Understanding at this point in time, his brothers were still unbelieving. It is possible that Jesus seeks to mark out the beginning of a new relationship that extends beyond that of flesh and blood and instead becomes a relationship based upon the common belief in Christ as the Messiah, as the very Son of God. And if this is so, then it is only after this declaration that everything is complete. In other words, after Jesus issues the beginning of a new relationship, that which will be the relationship of believer to believer based on the identity of who Christ is within a new community of which we would call the church... It's only after that that Jesus then says, or the word tells us that after this, Jesus knowing all things had been completed so that scripture must be fulfilled, cried out, I thirst. Bringing us to our last point. The wrath of God must be satisfied. Finally, after everything was completed, there was but one thing left to do. It's kind of obvious. The final act could only be accomplished in the ultimate act of death itself. For it all to be done, Jesus had to die. The Bible tells us that after Jesus knew that all things had already been accomplished, in order to fulfill the scripture, there's that little phrase, he cries out, that little phrase, I thirst. Now, some would have us believe that this is simply some narrative information that that is there because, hey, it's obvious. If you're hanging on a cross, you're going to get dehydrated and you would naturally thirst. And while that may be true, again, I would argue, doesn't seem to fit the pattern of John. I think John conveys a much greater point. And Jesus did indeed need to drink something. And it was finally time for him to drink the dreaded cup that he has mentioned on several occasions. Drinking the cup that Christ had to drink could only mean death. What cup was that? It was the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath. If you paid close attention to the reading earlier from Psalm, it was mentioned in Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down 
to the dregs. That's, that's good old English, right? Drain it down to the dregs. Empty it completely. Nothing left. And this cup which Christ now cries out for, I thirst, is the very cup of the wine of God's wrath that must be fully emptied. God's wrath towards sin meant death. Not only physical death, but eternal death. And it is the penalty due every sinner. And Jesus' cry of thirst was more than a physical urge. It was a theological declaration. Now, while the soldiers who were gathered around him who had no clue what was going on, while they heard these words and they made the assumption, hey, the guy wants something physically to drink, and so they respond to that, and John tells us they give him mixed wine, sour wine, which sounds very much like that from Psalm 75. They didn't understand, but God did, and Christ did, and I think John did. And for that reason, he tells us and records it this way. And it is upon this declaration, I thirst. Jesus, in preparation of drinking the cup of God's wrath empty to the full, down to the dregs, then cried out in his last earthly declaration before his death, it is finished. And so it was. It is finished. It is done. To the world, salvation's come. Hallelujah. We're alive. Not just physically. Much more than that. And hell was silenced. The serpent's head was crushed, as God promised so long ago. Hell was silenced when he cried, It is finished. The perfect sinless sacrifice has been made. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God's promise to crush the head of the serpent and bless the entire world through the righteousness of the promised seed has been fully accomplished. The death penalty that every human being deserves has been stayed for all who repent and believe in this Messiah. The perfect spotless lamb, Christ himself. The word made flesh. He absorbed on our behalf the full wrath of God due us. So what better news is there? Is there any news better than that? In the midst of this sinful world in which we live, there is salvation to be found. Some days it may not seem that way, but salvation is to be found. Only there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Except for the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this great declaration, this great truth that is revealed to us in this, the Gospel of John as, as our great Savior doing all that was necessary to be done on our behalf, though so undeserving, he cries out, it is finished. And so we today can hear those words with full confidence that there's not one thing left to be done. We, we can do nothing to contribute to it, we need do nothing to contribute to it. 
For all we can contribute to this great sacrifice is our own sin. The very reason for which it was made. So God, this morning I pray that maybe we, we reflect on this great truth. This great story. The gospel itself. Maybe with fresh ears. And fresh eyes. And may it thrill our hearts anew. I pray that while it is the old, old story, that it would never become merely an old story, but that it would be as though a new story in our hearts every time we hear those wonderful words. It is finished. And Father, for those of us who believe this morning, I pray that you would do that in our hearts. That as we approach this this celebration of the resurrection of our Savior, I pray that we would approach it maybe in a different way, in a new way, in a fresh way, that it wouldn't just be tradition, but that we would approach it with great anticipation and great excitement as we should approach our celebration of you every week and every day. So, Father, I pray for for those of us who believe that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. Compel us to worship, we pray. Compel us to, to repent continually of our sins. But then, Lord, for those who may be here this morning who have yet to repent of their sin and believe this this great story we call the gospel, I pray, Lord, you give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that would gladly run to the cross of Christ and believe. Father, that's a work that only you can do. It's a work that you've promised that you alone could do and would do. And so, God, we seek to be faithful to proclaim that great news and we ask, Lord, that you would draw sinners to yourself. We lift up our Savior in hopes that you would indeed draw sinners even this very day to yourself. So we ask, Lord, for you to do in our hearts what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.